Hi everyone, thanks for joining our Lean Startup webcast. Today's webcast will be leveraging tech to improve customer communication. I'm Felicia Chenko, production manager of Lean Startup Company. This webcast kicks off our series featuring speakers from Lean Startup Week, happening on October 31st and November 6th in San Francisco. Please visit leanstartup.co for more information. Jeff Gosshelf is an author, speaker, and organizational designer. Jeff has worked to bring a customer-centric, evidence-based approach to product strategy, design, and leadership. Aubrey Smith is the founder of an innovation strategy consulting firm and is an esteemed Lean Startup coach and faculty member. A few housekeeping notes. We'll be taking questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please flag it by starting with a Q colon before your question. This is a 16-minute program, and the recording will be available after this live webcast. Take it away, Aubrey and Jeff. Hello, everyone, and welcome, and welcome, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. This is an exciting talk for me because Jeff and I share something unique in common and that we're both on the deep end of challenging these large, complex organizations to act differently. And that's about just as hard as it sounds. But Jeff, unlike me, is the popular co-author of the book Lean UX, as everybody probably on the line knows about. But what you may not know about Jeff is that he is a rock star. Not because he has a cool guitar behind him, which is kind of awesome, but because he's been on a rock star tour as of late, which he might talk about, leading workshops and talks around the globe with small and large companies and working with very large and complex organizations all the way up to the C-suite. And in his free time, he's been writing a new book called <laughs> Sense and Respond. So he, he has a lot of, uh, he, do, he gets a lot done in the day. But I'd like to start off, Jeff, by talking about your new project and really talking about what's inspired the need for this book. What's this project all about? Sure. Hey, Aubrey, it's good to be here, and I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of this. Um, and uh, so, so we wrote Lean UX, and it came out three years ago. We actually turned the manuscript in uh, a few months before that. So really the ideas have been set in stone for almost four years as far as book publishing goes. You know, that, that there's not, not the most lean industry perhaps. <laughs> and and uh, um, over the last four years, the feedback, so Lean UX has done really well. And it started as a, as a very tactical book for designers by designers to help them navigate an increasingly agile world, software development becoming increasingly agile. How do you how do you do design in that world? The book exceeded expectations from an audience perspective. It really hit product managers, engineering managers, engineers, and so forth, not just designers. And the conversation that we kept hearing about over and over and over again was, hey, this is great. We'd love to work this way, but my boss won't let me work this way or my company doesn't work this way. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really an issue for me because I, I, would love, I would love to build these cross-functional collaborative teams. I'd love to include people in my design processes. And so in looking at that continuous market feedback, if you will, it became clear that there was another conversation that we wanted to have, Josh Seiden and I wanted to have, and that's what led to the book Sense and Respond. Really, and, and, and that's where the, the idea came from was, okay, if, if we've inspired all of these tactical execution teams to work differently, but they're bumping up against the, the friction of the organization that surrounds them, we need to talk to that organization. And that's what, that's what drove the, the book. Very good. So you've been working very closely at the team level and obviously have bumped up against all those organizational factors. What are some of those? Can you speak to some of the factors that are literally hamstringing some of those teams um, and constraining the work that you're trying to get done with them. What are the major kind of tenets of that? Yeah, so there, there's there's a few really clear ones, and there you know 
in, in my you alluded to my travels, my extensive travels. Um, <laughs> I, I'm happy, so happy to be home today. Actually, in my home office, not yeah. not not in an airplane or a hotel room. Uh, so, um, but in my in my travels, you know, the the themes are consistent, and I always I always joke with the with the teams that I work with that when they share with me what these challenges are, that there's good news and bad news, and the the good news is that they're not alone. There's lots of people suffering through these same challenges, and the bad news is that they're not alone. Is that everybody's dealing with this at the same time, right? Um, and those challenges are fairly consistent. So we're looking at, at and 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 perhaps not that unfamiliar to folks listening to this webcast, but they're they're silos. So discipline-specific silos and communication across those silos. So companies, believe it or not, even in 2016, still put marketing over here and engineering over here and design here and product management over there. And getting those folks to talk across silos is uh, to collaborate effectively and to, and to work on initiatives with the same incentive structures is a, is a huge challenge. Uh, communication uh, between engineers, designers, product managers, and the business is a huge challenge. Incentive structures as a whole really drive the way that these teams are managed and the way that work is assigned to these teams. And generally that means that they are incentivized to launch features, to ship stuff, as opposed to uh, to manage towards outcomes, which is to essentially to improve customer success. And, and really where this nets out is prioritization. So prioritization is a huge challenge for these folks. Um, what do we work on and when are we done and when do we switch to something else? Most of these organizations have adopted Agile to one extent or another. Sometimes it's, you know, it's cargo cult and sometimes it's a true deep uh, into, you know, transformation into Agile. But in all of those cases, they've taken the very literal, in almost all, I, I, I don't like to speak in, in absolutes, but in almost all of those cases, uh, they've taken the very literal meaning of done to heart in those situations. And done essentially means works as designed, past QA, and is now live and won't break under the, the weight of our users, right? And so um, those are really kind of the top five or six challenges uh, that I've seen, and they affect everything. They affect, they affect how the teams are structured. They affect how the teams get work assigned to them. It, they affect how, what the team shoots for and what they celebrate as a win mm -hmm. and what they determine as success. And it conflicts. It conflicts with lean startup principles. It conflicts with all of the ideas that we proposed in Lean UX. Um, and, and that's really where the conversation gets difficult, especially in these larger organizations. So let's hold there. What should they be celebrating? If they're celebrating kind of success as getting a product out the door, kind of done, that the concept you just talked about, redoing that, what should they be celebrating ultimately? They should be celebrating customer success. That's what, the, that's what we're here to do. We're here to make our customers more successful. And if we make our customers more successful, then we make our business more successful. And that's, it's amazing how difficult of a concept that is <laughs> to, to get across in so many companies. But that's what we, sh what we should be celebrating. And look, customer success uh, manifests in a variety of different ways depending on what you sell and, and how you deliver it. Um, but in, in a digitally enabled world, you can measure that, uh, and, and that should be the goal. We should be able to make our customers, uh, you know, finish their work faster or more accurately. We should be able to get uh, people to their kids' soccer games on time. We should be able to help, uh, you know, 
distant relatives connect more effectively. Whatever it is that we do, we need uh, we need to to focus on what that customer success is and celebrate when we achieve that. So I'm sitting in finance at a big company, right? And I don't talk to customers, and I don't really feel customers. What am I supposed to do about this problem? How am I supposed to interact differently with my product teams and the organization that I support? So, I mean, there's there's really two two issues there. One is that is one is that customer exposure is limited to a very small subset of an organization. And that's something that, that really should change. You know, exposure hours is something that Jared Spool uh, has championed for a long time. And it's this concept that everybody in a company has to talk to a, a customer, has to be exposed to customers for, let's, I think it's like two hours every six weeks. Right? Not, not a ridiculous requirement. Yeah. But it starts to break down that, that lack of awareness. Right, it's 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 not like it's not like finance are bad people, right? Or 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 you know they, you know or IT are bad people. Um, they just don't have this kind of uh, of exposure to to the people that we're building products and services for. So I think that's one thing that we can solve is actually to to drive this culture of exposure hours into a uh, into the company. And I'll give you a really quick example. Um, not not in finance so much, but um, we were working with a big media company here in New York for the last couple of years at my last company, Mio, and um, we were working with a specific uh, magazine brand in that company. And in helping them develop a new digital business with the content that they currently had, it became abundantly clear that no, nobody at that magazine had ever spoken to any of their readers. You know, as, as editors and as writers, right, <laughs> exactly, uh, they sort of assumed what their customers would actually want to read and what they would buy. And, and with the magazine industry in decline, they were running out of ideas. And one of the biggest wins in the engagement that we had with them was simply exposure hours. By the time the project was over, they recognized that everybody in the company should be talking to at least a couple of customers every month. And that fundamentally shifted how they thought about their work, what they published, what they wrote about, what was valuable, and how they delivered it. So that's one, I think. Um, is, is actually increasing the exposure throughout throughout the organization. But I think that even people in finance, for example, which is the example that we're using, can take a, a customer-centric view to, to their work. Now, their customers are not maybe the end customers of the company, but their customers are the uh, business uh, stakeholders, they're the product managers, they're the project managers, um, they are the people in charge of spending the money that finance doles out to them. And so the question then becomes, how do we know what's important to them and how they determine success? And then how do we change the way that we fund their initiatives to ensure that they have what they need to, to achieve that success? But also, how do we, how do we build a, a, a two-way conversation with our customers, um, our internal customers, so that we can make the best funding decisions, the most evidence-based, objective funding decisions because you, you know how it works right you've worked in big companies you, you they'll say we're planning you know most it's it's April now most companies are planning 2017 right now mm -hmm. right and, and assuming that they can predict the future and know exactly what's going to happen in 2017 and that's highly risky well wait I can just give them a budget for the next year and everything will go right isn't that isn't that the right thinking yeah <laughs> that's, that's, that's traditional budget that will work out you know, hope and hope and pray. Okay, yeah. so let's move on a little bit in that yeah. 
sort of the the thesis of your book has something to do with um, getting organizations to become listeners. So you've been talking about this idea of communication, and it seems a bit elusive in that there are a lot of components to that. What in your mind does it mean to become a listening organization? Yeah, so th there's a few components to that. There there are the, the tactical components, and I think there are the cultural components, right. the more philosophical components. Um, let's start with the kind of the bigger... Uh, F fluffier uh, components, which is really the cultural stuff, which is a bit, uh, and then we'll kind of get to the tactical stuff. Um, at, 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 the, at the highest level, it means building a culture of humility, a, a, a humble mindset into the organization. Because without that, if, if the leadership of the organization, if the culture of the organization is not a humble one, why bother listening? Right? We have all the answers. Right? We know what customers want, and we know exactly how it should work, and what it should look like, and how it will achieve their goals and our business goals. And so, without that, the listening doesn't even begin. And so, taking a humble perspective means we have a, a we have a strong belief about what the what the market needs are, and we have a a vision and strategy about how we think we're going to get there. Now we are going to figure out the tactics to get us there. We don't know the exact tactics to get us there, and we're going to learn those along the way. And as part of that learning, we may be forced to change our minds, and that's okay. And as soon as you can build that that mentality into a team or a management team or an organizational culture, then listening becomes part of the way that they learn whether or not they're actually doing good work uh, effective work making customers more successful. Now the sure, good so yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Jeff. Well, well, so, so, well the, the good news in that is that um, software drives every business of scale or any business that seeks to scale today, and and that technology gives businesses the capability to listen 24/7 to what's happening in the market, both with their customers and beyond that, as well as in, internally inside their companies, and and and. It's the humble organization, the, the learning organization, that takes advantage of those tools to then, then feed the learning and the course corrections along the way. Great. So we'll get to the technology because I want to spend a good chunk of the discussion around that. But let's start with this idea of vision. So I've worked with a lot of companies, and I believed going into these um, engagements that most companies have these grand, humble visions that are aspirational and bring the customer's perspective in. And unfortunately, that's not always the case because big organizations have a lot on their minds that's very near term. How do you get an organization to be a visionary in the way that you just described? Uh, so, look, there had, look, I think I think at a leadership level there there needs to be a level of confidence in the fact that you are addressing a real need in the marketplace and that you, you should believe that you have a superior solution to the to that issue um, to, to the concern that you're actually solving. So so the, the, ha having a strong opinion is absolutely warranted and needed. I'm, I'm not suggesting that we don't have strong opinions. Um, and those opinions come from experience, and they come from research, and they come from from feedback, and and whatever else. Um, the 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 trick is to be open to challenges to that opinion, mm -hmm. and to be willing, at the very least, willing to change your mind in the face of evidence. And and that's and I think that's that's the key, and that's that's the biggest challenge is that most people don't want to look 
like they don't know what they're doing in front of their colleagues. Some in, in many organizations, organizations that's frowned upon, and so there's a level of well, this is absolutely the, the way we have to go, and I don't want to hear anything anything to the contrary. And there's case study after case study after case study, right? The uh, BlackBerry, right? BlackBerry when when the Apple when the iPhone came out, they're like it's it's stupid and it's a toy, no one will ever use it, and we're just going to ignore it and ignore it and ignore it, even though all the facts. Uh, we're speaking to, to the contrary, and we know we know what happened there. Um, and so, I, I, it's I do want to stress the point that that it's absolutely important to have a strong vision and a strong opinion. It's just you just need to be open to to evidence that challenges the tactics to achieving that particular uh, vision. Right. And so, if you have an aggressive or ego-driven culture, leadership may be able to change that mindset. Is that what I hear from kind of what you're saying? So how do you change if you have this culture that isn't isn't that isn't humble? What do you do about that? It's probably not an easy answer. Yeah, I, I don't you know I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't know. It, this kind of stuff has to come from the top. I mean, if if the if the culture, if if the leadership values aggressiveness and you know uh, uh, confidence above all else in the in the face of evidence and fact, uh, that's that's going to be very, very difficult to overcome. Uh, I think that if you if if you bring in a, a a more humble leadership to an organization that has that has a, a an employee base that's perhaps been used to a more aggressive culture, that's going to that's going to be a, a turbulent time in that organization. And I think what you're going to, you're going to see is leadership drive some changes in the culture that some folks are not going to to mesh with, and there'll be uh, and, and a parting of ways with the folks who can't make the transition, and other folks will adjust to that, and then new hires will will start to reshape that culture. But you know, if it comes from the top, and that's what's driving the incentives and the rewards and the management structure, it's going to be very difficult to change that. Right. No, I see the same thing. Um, so let's talk about sense and respond. Mm -hmm. Where did you? What does that title sort of mean, and um, what are some examples of organizations that actually do that? Let's start with the meaning. Yeah. So the 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 meaning is really driven based on this on this on this humble principle. It says, look, as an organization, we have not only the capability but the responsibility to continuously sense the uh, the efficacy of what we're doing. The impact that it's having on our customers and our market, as well as the impact that it's having on our on our employees and the way that we we're running our we're running our business. At the same time, we have an equal uh, obligation to respond to what we're learning at the pace of that learning. We don't have the luxury to sit and learn and sense and sense and sense. And then at some point in you know in in the random future, we decide to then respond. There's there's too much. Uh, you know the barriers to entry in most industries have been lowered. There's too much competitive advantage out there for businesses trying to disrupt other businesses, um, and so we need to be able to respond to what we're seeing in the market as quickly as we can sense it. And so that was the driving for the for the thinking of it. It's it's this it's this continuous feedback loop and this continuous conversation with the market that is effectively driven with uh, through technology, right? So software is enabling us to 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 have these conversations and to re, to respond to those conversations. And to and to be clear, the the sensing component, I I think that a lot of organizations are doing that or are starting to do that um, in in many ways. And we can talk about it specifically how it's the respond half. 
of the loop where most of them are struggling because again that means admitting that you were wrong and that's not safe in a lot of cultures. Yeah, no, and I like how you're talking about the cultural elements because it isn't all technology. Um, yeah. It has to be driven by a change in the way you actually work. So I, I stead on. But let's talk about technology for a second because yeah. I'm purely interested in thinking about a lot of the people I've worked with in enterprises actually really don't have a ton of exposure to the technologies that might enable them to respond better, to actually work more effectively. Can you talk about kind of some of those technologies and maybe give us an example of a company that's doing this well? Sure. So uh, the, the 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 technology is fairly common. So I'm, I'm not, I, I, you know, I, sure. I, I don't know if I'm going to list anything that anyone has never heard of before. But um, but in, generally, it's it's things like uh, you know, analytics products, right, to measure what people are doing with, with your, and it, it baffles me sometimes when I, when I start working with a, with a team and I say, where are your analytics reports? And they'll say, well, we don't have those. Or, you know, or, or they only have kind of surface level, top of funnel Google Analytics, which is a great free tool, but for, for an enterprise level business, you probably need a little bit more horsepower in your analytics. Um, but, but measuring what people are doing, simply, you know, a, a, any kind of digital interaction is measurable. So let's make sure that we at least have that data. Um, qualitative research as, it, as, as the, the other half of, of the quantitative side, right? it's not enough to understand what people are doing, but we have to regularly get a sense of why they're doing it because we can't respond accurately if we only know what's happening. And so investing in, in qualitative research as a discipline, investing in uh, pushing it into the process of the teams. And so one of the things that I, I always uh, stress when I work with new teams is that research, just like design, just like writing code, just like gathering requirements or QA or marketing, is a part of your cycle. And it's not this monolithic thing that happens at the beginning of a project or at the end of a project. We just simply do less of it more often. And so there's always learning happening during each cycle. And so there's, there has to be an organizational investment in those skill sets and in the time necessary to do that. Um, so there's that. Um, there are feedback channels for your business, whether they're direct feedback channels through your websites and your apps, or whether it's online review systems like Yelp and Foursquare and uh, 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 TripAdvisor and, and, and so forth that give you a sense of whether a, a system, uh, a product that you're offering is good or not, right? Google's got a bunch of reviews as well. Um, you know, there are uh, corporate feedback systems, all of the HR software that is, is implemented inside organizations um, provides insight about how your employees are feeling about certain projects, about certain benefits, about certain work that they're doing, about cultural shifts. And so there, there's, there's an endless array of technology that can feed back into the organization about how well we're managing and how well we're, we're creating our products and services. Oh, uh, and then, and then, of course, uh, it's it's worth it's worth noting that uh, you know things like continuous delivery, continuous integration, um, help us get our uh, new ideas into customers' hands much more quickly than we ever have uh, been able to in the past, as well. And that provides a feedback loop because as soon as you get something into customers' hands, you can sense whether or not it actually changed the way that they they behave. Right. So. Most organizations, like you said, do research or do some sort of holistic review with executives at the beginning and the, and the end. They may have a stage gate process or a lot of different names for these things. And 
most organizations are actually not responding very well to customers. So what are the processes at the higher levels, so beyond the team unit, that you suggest integrating with executives and then middle managers to help teams feed that up the, the chain? So, so the, look, the, the key is to, I, I think the key is, is in how the management assigns work to their subordinates, to their teams, to their business units. And I think that if, if they assign it in, in terms of customer success, then the decision making, the learning, the sensing, and the responding that the, the teams need to do can stay, for the most part, at the team level until such a time that they generate enough evidence to say, um, dear project sponsor, it seems you've tasked us with this particular business problem. All the evidence that we're collecting uh, has led us to believe that either the problem is not actually real or there's no way given our current services and offerings that we could solve it or that we should actually, it's not exactly framed correctly, we should actually be solving this, this, this you know, different framing of that problem. And, and so that is a fundamentally different conversation then that's a stupid thing to work on, right? It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a conversation based on evidence that the team has collected and then is feeding back up, up the chain. Um, the, the, the thing that I, that I recommend to teams, though, is if, if they do get that opportunity, is to be as radically transparent as possible with the work that they're doing because in all likelihood their stakeholders and their managers aren't used to this way of working. And so the more that they can feed back up about what they're learning, how they're learning it, and how they're making decisions will lend credibility to their to the responses to the to the feedback that they're sending back up the chain itself. But it's really about how the how the work is tasked, and then how much communication comes back up from the teams doing the work. So in essence, you're talking about so some teams who are already doing this because they're working with people like you or others are learning how to respond to the market in a faster loop. But what they need to do is start building evidence, right? So talk to those executives about how this is actually driving change and better outcomes ultimately. That's mm -hmm. what I hear. And then if I'm an executive, can I lead this change alone is the question I always ask uh, people in this, in this space. And if I do, how do I measure my employees differently? What do I now measure? What questions do I ask my employees? How do I become better at leading a team like this? That's really great questions. Um, so I, the most successful engagements that I've either been a part of or have uh, coached or, or have seen have come from uh, in a situation where there has been a champion. So there's been somebody in the organization, and, it, and it's rare, to, to be perfectly honest, it's rarely the entire leadership team. But within the leadership team, there are one or two individuals who are bought in. Right? They've read Lean Startup. They've read all the books. They're, 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 they're bought in. They know their organization isn't perfect and it's not there yet, but they're, they're ready to spend some political capital and roll the dice uh, on, on a team working this way. And so what, what I've seen work is, is those become the sponsors for pilot initiatives. And in those pilot initiatives, the, the, the champions, these executive champions, carve out the space 
that these teams need to figure out how to work this way, and they they, they kind of shield and I'm, I'm kind of, they kind of hold back the floodwaters <laughs> of organizational crap that would normally rain down on these teams, right? And so that, and so that's their job. Their job is just to create the safe space for you know a period of time long enough to prove out that these ideas can work. Now the success criteria that they're looking for, the way that they want to report back to the organization, is um, they, they want to talk about business successes. I think they want to talk about uh, morale, productivity, efficiency, and and then ultimately um, progress towards corporate objectives, as opposed to um, productivity, velocity, throughput, um, things like that. Um, you know. Uh, I, I think managing to those things, which is traditionally what we've done, uh, optimizes the software delivery process so we can get more stuff out the door. But I think if, if we're looking for um, ultimately the, the, the efficiency and the, um, the, the, the success of the team as a whole moving towards this, uh, this customer objective, that becomes a thing that they can report back to, to the organization in, ter in business language. Right? And, and again, I think this is, this is something that, that I see break down so often with companies and teams who do run these pilot initiatives, and then they, then they come back to the rest of the organization to report back and they say, um, hey, we did this thing, and, uh, and we ran these experiments, and we learned these three things, and we, we changed this screen, and we moved these things over here, and now the customers can do that. And, and while those are all good and interesting facts, the people that they're trying to convince ultimately probably don't care about that. What they care about is terrific. How does this make our business more successful? How does this reduce our costs? How does this drive retention or, or uh, acquisition for the business or whatever it is? And so if we, can, if we can take those learnings and speak that as the outcome back to the organization, that's how you can measure the success of the team and that's how you can prove the success. Now there's, this, and I've seen this firsthand and, and I think this has to be has to be experienced through you know managing by walking around or, or whatever but um, there is an infectious quality when teams start working this way and they're doing good work and they're hitting their targets and they're making you know they're making a difference in customers lives they're making a difference in the business there is an enthusiasm that is infectious to the rest of the organization I've seen it firsthand with teams you know with pilot teams that are starting to work this way and then daily stand-ups, for example. There's a bunch of teams doing daily stand-ups, and you can tell the team that's working this way, and the others are just kind of looking over there and like, what? why are they having so much fun at work? Like, why, why are they, like, <laughs> they're working differently than we are, right? This is, this is a bitter slog for us, and they don't seem to be suffering as much as we are. And, and, they're like, and, they, and they, they, be, they become interested, and, and it, there's, a, there's an active request for this from other elements of the business, which I think is another measure of success as well. Internal, internal kind of requests. That's interesting, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so you and I talked a little bit about recently the idea that we're sitting in the vanguard of a digital age. Obvi that's obvious to people like you and I. It is not so obvious to a lot of Fortune 500s out there. Mm -hmm. There are certain Fortune 500s who don't believe that they have to become a software company. Yeah. So is software taking over the world, and what are the implications of that on both this idea of becoming a listening organization, but on all companies everywhere? Yeah, so I, I firmly believe that software is eating the world. I know, I know that that's, that's become perhaps cliche, and 
I've certainly I've certainly used it in presentations, and uh, <laughs> I've, I see you know I don't think a tech conference goes by with at least one you know without at least one reference to to that quote. Um, but that said, I believe that it's true. I think that if you're if you're a business of scale or seeking to scale in the 21st century, then you are in the software business first, and you're cha you have to change the way that you manage your business based based on that, and and and, that, and it's it's. It's a stark realization for many businesses, and, and again, technology has lowered the barrier to competition in so many um, in so many fields. I mean, financial services. Is, look at look at all the players in financial services um, that are that are you know eating the world. I mean, even PayPal. You could joke at PayPal, but they're, they're still uh, kind of the the 800 pound gorilla in, in the payment space, and they're continuing to, to try to, to to get better. Square and Stripe and all of these businesses, and then and you you you're in this like this pack of of trailing uh, old banks behind them, right? The 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 Visas and yeah, and me too, <laughs> and the cities and the J P Morgans, right? Who are like, oh crap, they're like we're we're gonna lose we're gonna lose the advantage here, right? And so there's 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 a um, so yes, so software is is eating the world. Um, rethinking your business is 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 crucial then. Um, my, I, have a, I have a great, there's a case study in Sense and Respond that I, I'd love to share and it's it, it's completely bizarre in that in that it's a, it's a business that most of us don't actually uh, talk about very, uh, at all, let's be honest. Um, and it's, it's bovine breeding, uh, which is, you know, essentially how do you ensure the health of your herd of cattle. Your bovine that you have outside. Right, right, right. We I all, need that. We all, you know, but, 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 but think, think about that business for a second, right? So we have a case study in, in, in the Sense and Respond that's about this company called Select Sires, which they're based in Ohio, and they're one of the leading uh, providers of bovine breeding product, which is bull semen, let's just say it. It's what they sell. <laughs> Okay, that's for those that were wondering. Right, uh, that's that's that's. It. But the the industry that they're in is thousands of years old. This is a practice, you know, herd, uh, you know, you know, domestication and breeding of animals uh, is is a thousands year old practice, and it's handed down from generation to generation to generation. Now, what's fascinating is that today's farmers are Gen X. And millennials, right? Mm -hmm. We've got we've we've got a, we've got a uh, we've got farmers that are aging out, and those replacing them are Gen Xers and and millennials, and they're Google generation farmers, and so they know less, but they rely on Google to learn the things that they need, so that they kind of a just in time model for what they need to know to successfully mm -hmm. run their business. Now, Select Sires has, re has recognized this and has digitized their business. So they're building an interface to their product line that allows you to tweak certain variables and to run search queries and to return the product that you actually need and to provide a digital interface to this new service. Now along the same lines, they're digitizing the entire delivery of their business as well when it comes to um, Picking and packing the product—it's—it's it's encased in liquid nitrogen, right? We're talking about um, very small amounts of, of product encased in large liquid nitrogen containers, mm -hmm. um, and 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 so they, they've hired a software team, right? This this, this company that's in a thousands-year-old business has hired an engineering team to digitize their business and to provide the kind of service that a modern organization needs, and they're winning. 
because of that. A modern farmer needs that, right? The same thing. It's it's a, it's a, it's an interesting and perhaps a little bit niche example, but the, <laughs> the same thing is happening. Slightly niche, but fair, no, I'm just fair enough, right? But the same thing is happening in every industry, right? The same thing. Um, uh, is happening in uh, you know Michelle Fan is a great example of the power of of digital platforms to build uh, a makeup brand, right? She she yeah. just she was just somebody who started doing uh, makeup videos on YouTube, and today she's got a two billion dollar company that's you know competing with with uh, with some of the top companies, and she's been you know hired as as a spokesperson for makeup companies, and that's the power of digital technology. The 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 ability for competition to get ahead of you is there, and the ability to understand what the audience wants and to, to tweak your offering in real time is there. And those companies that don't recognize that and don't see that, they're going to lose. I like your analogy, too, because I think bull semen, though it is a niche industry, uh, kind of could be replaced with almost anything. And there are a lot of companies that I talk to who make excuses about being a technology company. And really, you could say, if a bull semen company is becoming a technology company, why isn't everyone else, kind of? So uh, I ask you that question. What are What's holding some of these companies back? Why aren't... Why isn't every company getting into the technology game? Why aren't they talking to customers using technology on a daily or every touch point basis? What's what's holding them back? Yeah, so I, th I think they, I think they see technology as IT, and it's just you know th this service organization that um, you know enables the the uh, warehouse inventory management system or something like that. There, there's this it's it's just one of the many departments in the organization. And the conversation really has to shift as uh, IT permeates everything, right? Technology permeates everything, and that that mindset has that mindset shift hasn't happened in many organizations. They still see it as a department, yep. right? As opposed to a key component of the way that we do business, and um, so, you know, and so you know, you you see that in well, let, let's in digital strategies where it's like, oh, we'll just make an app. Right, uh, as, as, as as a way to solve right, as a way to solve our business problems, um, as opposed to we we will integrate a a continuous feedback loop using technology with the market, and then adjust course. And again, really, it's it's this. Um, I, the other thing I think that that's holding. So that's one. I think the other thing that's holding them back is I don't think enough organizations have have it in their DNA that customer success equals business success. The 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 um, when whenever I teach a class or speak with a new team, the the f one of the first questions that I ask them is, how does your business? Uh, how would you describe the way that your business makes decisions? And I give them three choices, but the, you know, it's open. Is it process centric? Is it user centric? Or is it business centric? And and over ninety percent of the time, it's business centric. Right? Whatever we think will optimize the business. And usually, it's in the short term. Um, that's what we're going to go with. And I've seen this firsthand in my in my jobs as well. Um, so those are the two things. I think really, it's it's this mindset of IT as a service as opposed to IT uh, enables everything and technology enabling everything, and then customer value equaling business value. Yeah, and I know it sounds simple that IT should pervade an organization, but in reality, that's actually kind of difficult because today, the way the units are kind of are are made up. IT isn't embedded in every product team or every um, 
delivery of a product to to a marketplace. So that's a radical shift for some of these companies. So there mm -hmm. are some good excuses, I'll say. Sure. So I'd love to kind of continue chatting with you, Jeff. We could talk all day, but we have actually a very a lot of questions from the audience. So oh, I want to get started with some of those. So sure. thank you all for your participation. Uh, I'll try to get to as many as I possibly can. Um, so. One of them is pretty a big question. How does one try to promote humility in a culture where there is this aggressiveness and aggressiveness is highly valued? We talked about that a little bit early on, yeah. but what are those factors? What do you do if you're somebody on the line that wants to promote humility? Um, yeah, that's, it's, it's, look, it's, it's really tough, I think, that if, 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 cult, if the culture doesn't value it, my sense is that any attempt to to bring uh, uh, a humble point of view will get squashed or stomped on very very quickly, or or maybe even ridiculed. You know, I, I think that that's probably a risk in that type of culture. Um, the the thing that I've, I, I I advise people to do, and and I, I do, and I always I was at a grain of salt, but the, the the advice that I give is let let's at least look back at the last initiative. If we're so confident that we know exactly what 2017 will be like, and we're so confident about we know what we need to build how it should work and what it will cost. Can, let's look at 2016 for a second. Can we do that? Right? Um, what do we think about 2016? And how much of that did we get right? Um, maybe we should try something else in 2017, right? Um, in, in the sense of like, you know, in most cases if 50% you know, of plan or 60% of plan is a good day for many companies, right? that's 40% waste. Right is so so, but of course the risk and then so that's that's the conversation that I, I try to suggest. But it's super risky because you're talking to the people who made those plans, and if you make them feel like an idiot, they're going to shut down and get defensive. Yeah. Right. Like you're 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 not getting anywhere, and so you've got to you've got to figure out how to navigate that conversation with a specific individual to say, uh, you remember you remember Project Diamond. God, what a joke that was, right? It's like, oh, right, right. We, we totally thought that, and it was totally wrong, right? Well, this Project Sapphire, it's, it's next incarnation, right? Um, maybe we should try something differently, right? What do you think, right? And so I don't, I don't know how to navigate that in your organization, but that's the conversation you should try to have if you're trying to, to promote this, hey, let's, let's not assume we're totally right every time <laughs> type of conversation. How many projects do you think are called Project Diamond? I'd love to <laughs> I can tell you how many T-shirts <laughs> I have in my gym clothes drawer that have yeah. that on it. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so something, another question is very similar. How does one try to promote humility? Um, who in the organization should be leading humility? Is it led from HR? Um, it's led from HR through hiring and through, um, I think, uh, perhaps perhaps training and, and access to to uh, professional development, but it's, it's, it's from the C-suite on down. There, the, the leadership of, of the organization, the leadership of your businesses or your business lines has to show that it's okay to be, that, that it's okay to be wrong and that it's, it's okay to learn and that it's okay to change your mind, right? Now there has to be good reason for that, there has to be strong evidence for that, but it has to that has to come from the top down. If 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 it's okay for the business line leader or the CEO to change their mind, then it has to be okay for me to change my mind as well. It ha it has to come from the top down. Right. No, I like that actually. So here's a bit of a shift. How does one train your customer to respond to the increased and improved form of commu communication since they may be engaged more often or maybe kind of touching the custom the company more often? 
So I, I think we're doing that. I, I think that's happening um, through many B2C-style interactions. Um, there, the, the pace of change in digital services is so rapid to this today that I don't think many customers really recognize it. And so we don't have to ask them about every little thing, right? Simply the way that they change their behavior based on the updates we've made to the product indicates whether we made some good, good changes or bad changes. Um, there's rating systems everywhere, and every, everybody's asking you very, very easily and very, uh, in, in minimally invasive ways to rate things. And so I think that's happening. And I think that customers are getting used to it and are becoming um, expectant of continuous optimization and continuous change. Um, my favorite example of this is, you remember like three, four years ago, every time Facebook would make a change to their interface, um, these groups would pop up, a million people yeah. against the Facebook redesign, right? Yeah. Remember that? And people get so angry, like, ah, oh, you moved my like button, right? Um, today, you don't see that, right? Because the app updates every two weeks, and the website updates probably 50 times a day, right? And so they just can't spin up the groups fast enough. But, um, right. no, but, but, they, but they, there's a recognition that, that my products will continue to shift and evolve. And so I think we are implicitly training customers um, with, with the, the pace of, of deployment, with the pace of change, and with you know, injecting these very uh, low friction touch points that allow them to interact with us. And if they'd like a deeper level of conversation, we're leaving it up to them. We're giving them those channels. We're opening up those conversations through uh, reviews, surveys, um, uh, customer interviews, who knows, right? There's, but but we're, we're giving them uh, deeper channels if that's what they're actually looking for. Sure. My, my piggyback on that is, are we possibly training some of our customers to avoid our kind of metrics and our data collection and maybe even us in the process? Or is that not a risk a company should, should worry about initially? Um, uh, you, you, potentially, right? I mean, there, there is there's the, there's the risk of burnout and like stop asking me for all of this. But it, look, I get asked that a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, it's look, fear. Yeah, but I mean, look, it's, so when it comes to active rating, I think that yes, I think you run the risk of of eventually driving people away. Um, but there's 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 no way that your customers are going to get away from digital tracking of their activities in your products and services. That's the nature of the products and service uh, of a digital product or uh, of, a, of a digital service, right? I mean, even even you know, Apple. Uh, I saw a stat yesterday, the day before. Um, an average iPhone user unlocks their phone 80 times a day, something along those lines, right? You're not thinking about the fact that Apple's tracking you every time you unlock your phone. But they're measuring every single interaction with your phone. I'm, my, my iPhone's over here. That's why I'm pointing over that way, by the way. <laughs> uh, that's why I keep pointing at it. It's like literally right there. But, um, but that, that's, um, uh, there's no way to avoid that, right? And so, so yes, you, can, you, you risk pissing people off with, with the active asking for feedback um, or driving them away from that. But um, the, 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 the behavioral tracking is going to be there. So here's um, a, a little bit of a shift. How do, we, how do we defend our competency if we change our minds where people who don't understand the technology are promoting? So how do we change our mind if our, our competency is not technology? So how do we make these shifts if we don't know technology to begin with is kind of how I read this one. A lot of my customers 
have no idea when to make technology decisions or when to shift those decisions. How do you know you're using the right thing? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I, I, don't, um, I, don't, I don't know if I've got a great answer off the, off the top of my head for that. Um, I think it's important to stay aware of your industry. I think it's important to stay aware of your competition, and I think it's important to stay aware of, of, of consumer consumption trends, of your, of your target audience and their, and their consumption trends. Um, so I, I, it's, it, I, I, think I think it's just good management, frankly. It's funny, it's funny because this brings up a, 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 an anecdote from I, I was working with, with uh, I did a public workshop in, in, um, in Europe a, a couple of weeks ago, and I had I had some uh, a couple of folks who were uh, asking me similar questions like how what is the lean approach to deciding how to shift our business or what is the lean approach to to making these kind of technology decisions and I don't know that there's a lean approach to that I think that's just good management and it's it's it, and and good management is 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 understanding your your business your industry your competition consumer trends technological trends and then saying, okay, it looks like our customers are, you know, incre increasingly younger and increasingly um, coming to our products with a mobile-first or a mobile-only attitude. And everything that we build is desktop-based and it's on 30-year-old legacy systems. And there's a significant competition being funded in our space that is uh, catering exactly to this audience. What do we want to do about it? Right, and and that's and and to your and to, to your question, that's the that's good management. You have a choice at that point. You can stick your head in the sand and do what you've always done and hope that it'll work out, and it won't, right? Kodak um, did that. Blackberry right. did that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, Motorola did that, right? You can uh, name them all. Yeah. Right. Or you can say, okay, we're going to, we're going to to start to make a shift, but. And again, really, this this is kind of I think where, where Lean Start really laid, laid the groundwork for a lot of, of of good thinking around these shifts. Is that you don't have to jump into the deep end of that immediately. You can begin to take smaller experimental steps towards that to understand if indeed that is the right technological choice and that is actually going to make a significant shift in your business, and then expand your investment in that based on the evidence that you're collecting from that. So it's not all in at once. There's a test and learn approach to even building, bringing that technology on board is what I heard you say. Absolutely, absolutely. Which is obvious to us, but I just want to make that more obvious here. Yes. Um, so I like this question too. What's the best approach to initiate exposure hours in a state government division outside of the obvious help desk staff? How do you integrate all projects in IT, I'm intuiting? In a government so situation? So we've got help desks. It's a, it's a state government question, but it relates okay. to everybody else. So how do you get IT exposure hours? <laughs> uh, uh, I, I mean, there's, there's, there's a great photo from uh, gov.uk, from the, the, the uh, GDS, the Government Digital Service in, in the UK that built gov.uk, where they took a one of the windows where the, the, the digital team was working for the UK government, they took a piece of cardboard, they stuck it to the window, they cut a hole in it, 
and they wrote above the hole. They wrote in, in Sharpie. They were, they wrote users with an arrow to the hole. So as you're looking <laughs> out the window, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. So as you're looking out onto the so masses simple. of London, right? There yeah. are your customers, right? And just to kind of drive home the fact that you're building things for people, um, how do you actually get exposure hours? There, there's um, there's a variety of different ways, right? First of all, there, at the very least, you can start to, to traffic customers through the building on a regular basis. So if you can't get people out of the building, at least bring customers into the building. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's happening, and then you're inviting everybody to those sessions, right? To, to observe those sessions, broadcasting those sessions on an internal network, um, cutting those up into small, uh, interesting clips and then showing them at demo days or at some kind of company all hands. Anything that you can do to, to show people the benefit of this and then start to drive a, a, a movement with, with managers and with leaders to say, look, I'd like to get your people in front of customers for two hours every six weeks, right? Which is not a huge ask. It's two lunches, uh, you know, every, it, it's a lunch every three weeks where they don't have to do anything but just observe me talking to customers. Okay? And, and, and that doesn't have to be leadership-led, right? I mean, that could be no. a, a person could ask, hey, can I speak to customers? And I bet that's not a ask that most IT people are doing today, and that's a simple step in my mind. Yeah, so yeah, if you're in IT and you're interested, definitely ask, because I guarantee there's somebody in your organization already doing it, and they'd be yeah. thrilled to have you on board. Um, and, and so, yeah, it does not have to be a leadership ask at all. I think if you, you can take the initiative and ask for it, um, but anything that you can do to expose it to the organization that this is already taking place goes goes a long way. And then, and then being very open about it and saying, we would love to have you here, and, and we're broadcasting it, and please be a part of it. Okay, so I think we're reaching the end of our talk. I'd love to continue this um, longer, but Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. My I did want to mention that Jeff uh, is joining the conference, the Lean Startup Conference that starts in October. Is that correct, Jeff? It I is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If not, he is now. <laughs> and, uh, I'm in. Jeff, did you, did you want to mention when your book is... Uh, coming out, or can people pre-order Sense and Respond today? Why, why, yes, they can, Aubrey. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, yeah, so Sense and Respond, um, the book will be out um, in late November, so the, the conferences are in early November. I wish I could come to the conference with a whole stack of books to, uh, to, uh, to, to give to people while I'm there, but um, it, maybe, and maybe I'll have some galleys at that point, which I hope to, but technically the book is coming out late November, perhaps early December. Um, if you're interested in pre-ordering, the Amazon page is now up, and um, as you know how this stuff works, the more pre-orders, the better. So if you go to um, senseandrespond.co, that will take you to the book site, and that will give you a link to the pre-order, which is a great way to go. Um, we also have bit.ly slash sense and respond, which will take you there as well. But senseandrespond.co will give you kind of a big sense of the book, uh, a little bit about Josh and myself, some of the background, and then um, we'd love for you to have a copy of it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. This is a lot of fun, and uh, I hope we can continue this conversation on the web. Thanks, guys. Yep. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. This wraps up our show. Please join us again for the next one on May 5th. In the meantime, visit leanstartup.co for more information on Lean Startup Week in San Francisco on October 31st to November 6th.